The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning. It is so good to see all of you. Um, this has been, I hope your summer was good. Um, it's been great to have a little bit of sabbatical time. Uh, before I left to go on sabbatical, everyone asked me one question. What are you going to do? And while I was on sabbatical, people asked me, what are you doing? And now that I'm back, everyone asks, what did you do? And it's the same answer to all of those questions. Nothing. I did nothing. I planned to do nothing, and I did nothing. But doing nothing is harder than it looks. I never realized how hard my children were working when they were doing all their nothing. Because I would ask them, would you like to do something? And they would say, no. And I would say, what are you doing? And they would say, nothing. Or they would get upset when I asked them to unload the dishwasher. And I would say, why not? You're not doing anything. Had I only known that in they're not doing anything, that they were accomplishing the deep work of doing nothing. So I had this motto, nothing must be done. That was my motto throughout all of sabbatical. It's double meaning that I have to do nothing. I need to take this time off and that there's nothing really all that urgent that I have to do. And I, I committed to it. The first day of sabbatical, Rochelle and I are leaving. She gets in the driver's seat because she has a new car and she's very precious about other people driving it. And she looks at me and tells me that she's forgotten something inside the house. Now, we, we've all done this. You get to the car, you realize that something that you meant to take with you, you left inside, like your purse or your children or something like that. And she looks at me and says, I forgot whatever this thing was that she forgot. But she looks at me with those eyes that aren't really saying, I forgot something. She's looking at me with those eyes that are saying, you should go get something. And so I turn my head to my lovely wife of 25 years and say, I'm on sabbatical. I barely washed dishes. I didn't vacuum anything. I didn't clean anything. Like I was very committed to all of my nothing. And it was a great nothing. But what I realized also on sabbatical is that when other people, especially your friends and family, realize that you are doing nothing, they always have something for you to do. And I told them, this is my sabbatical not your excuse to get me to do all of your somethings. This worked most of the time until I was in Atlanta visiting my mother. And I walk in the house 
And she says, oh, there are a couple of things that I need done around the house. And she says it in this way that's like off the top of her head. Like, oh yeah, by the way. And I said, that's fine. I expect to do this. I'm your son. And quite frankly, at this point, like I'm, I'm now your only son. And so I said, what is it? She says, it's on the refrigerator. <laughs> so I walked to the refrigerator and it's not just some things around the house that need to be done. It says at the top of the list on the refrigerator, Sean's to-do list. (laughs) This was premeditated something in the middle of my nothing, and I was kind of resentful of it. But some of you in all of my nothing were really kind after my brother died. And you're the only ones that get this because I can talk all day at this service. Um, With calls and texts and cards. Um, And I really appreciate the people. Um, One who reached out to us, but those um, who, like my friend Ryan here, wants to get together for lunch. And I say yes because I know that he won't leave me alone until I do. And so I'm very grateful for that. But nothing was very hard for me. It was a lot of work. When I was 15 years old, there was a mattress store about two miles from my house. And they just needed a couple of guys at this mattress store to come in three days a week after school, work to like six or seven that night, just moving things around, mattresses and all of those kinds of things. And you just had to be strong enough to move these mattresses around. And I really wanted this job because I was getting tired of my parents getting tired of me asking for money. And so I thought they would jump at the chance And so I go home and I talk to my mom about it. Now, because I was 15 in Georgia to get a job at 15, you have to have your parents sign off, your guardians sign off, because you're not allowed to go out and get a job on your own until you're 16. And my mom, for whom this job would have cost a lot because I couldn't drive yet, I wasn't 16, she would have to take me and bring me back. Like it was gonna be a lot of work on her part. She said, yeah. And my dad, who lived two states away and would not have to do anything, said no. And he said, but I want you to know why I don't think you should do this. And he said, the reality is, once you start working, you will never stop working. And I think my dad understood something just about a consumer market economy that we all live in, that most of us were raised in, but he also knew something about me. And it comes as a shock to a great many teenagers that their parents actually do know them and know them in some ways that they don't even know themselves. And I am just wired in a particular way. And I would imagine that many of you are, that once you start working, you've never stopped working. 
Like you just work. A friend of mine and I had a conversation about seven years ago and he was asking me what I did for fun or what I do on days off. And he told me, he said, I imagine for you that'd be really difficult because you would just fill the time. And I was like, yeah, I would just fill the time. And, and I say this just as an illustration and not a flex of any kind, but the reality is, like for me in my life, like I am booked for speaking around the country up until and through 2024. I've written three trade books and I've got my publishing house wanting the note to know if I wanna do two more. I write a monthly column for Christianity today. I just work. And some of you are like that. Because this father of mine who said, once you start working, one of the things that he said years before that, in a moment of pride, he says to me, you know what? I have never gone a day without having a job. And what the reality is for me, I suspect is the reality for you. That you have formed an imagination around work and working. And it may have come from our culture, or our country, parents, siblings, friends, other coworkers somewhere along the way that has formed your imagination around work. And so if you're here last week, you know that Pastor Chris and Erica kicked off the series that we're going to be in for the next several weeks about work. And we have all of these imaginations about work and working, but few of us ever pause to ask, how did I get that imagination around work? Where does that come from? My senior year of high school was the last day for seniors. And we've got finals that day. And right before school, I'm talking to my friend, David. And David is smart in all of the ways that I'm not smart. So like that year, he had taken like this advanced physics class and discrete math and like calculus too. Like, like I barely made it out of algebra too. And somehow Rochelle lets me do our taxes. I don't get it, but she does. And I asked him, why did you do that to yourself? And he said, well, I want to be an engineer. And I said, why do you want to be an engineer? And he says, because they make a lot of money. And I like engineers. I like bridges that don't collapse. I like planes that land, especially when I'm on them. But that was his imagination, is that the purpose of his work was to earn a lot. And Lord knows we need good Christian people who earn a lot. But where does that come from? Because I asked a group of Christians in the last couple of weeks, what it is that you have ever heard about the scriptures and work. Like, where does that come from? And you know what many of them told me? They told me the verse, if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. You've heard that verse before? And that verse is not about working or not working. 
That in the ancient world, you had land, you farmed it, you harvested it. It was in a square and you were instructed when you harvested to do it, to harvest in a circle, leaving the corners. And so that way the poor and the destitute could walk through and have food. That's a verse about using your work to feed the poor. That's not about your own personal work. So with all of these inputs, few of us have ever asked, what does God want me to do about my work? Like, am I just supposed to earn as much as I can? Or I'm supposed to do something that I'm passionate about, something that I love, something that brings me life? Am I supposed to just inherit the firm from mom or dad? Am I supposed to do what my spouse, my partner wants me to do? Am I supposed to do something that gives me the maximum amount of latitude and freedom for our kids or for our future kids? And part of the problem when we talk about work is one of language. Because we have lots of words that sound different, but when people say them, we think they're talking about the same thing. So Timothy Butler, who is a Harvard business psychologist, wrote about our confusion about work. And this is what he says. He says, there are three words that tend to be used interchangeably and shouldn't be. They are vocation, career, and job. Vocation is the most profound of the three, and it has to do with your calling. It's what you're doing in life that makes a difference for you that builds meaning for you, that you can look back on your later years to see the impact you've made on the world. A calling is something you have to listen for. You don't hear it once and then immediately recognize it. You've got to attune yourself to the message. And so here, when we're talking about work, and when the scriptures talk about work, what we're really talking about is vocation. And vocation is a calling, a strong inclination toward a particular course. So here's the reality. You can have a job and not have a vocation. You cannot have a job and have a vocation. You can earn little or you can earn much and have or not have a vocation. You can wake up every morning to care for the little creatures that spend all of your money and break all of the dishes and have a vocation. What if there is a distinctly Christian way to go about your work. Dorothy Sayers wrote about this in her essay, Why Work? This is what she said. She says, what is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. 
the medium in which you offer yourself to God. Now, I went to a Christian university, and except for the ministry majors, not even there did you hear very much talk about your vocation or your work or your job being an offering to God. Not only what you do, but who you do it with and how you go about it, an offering to God. And both Timothy Butler and Dorothy Sayers are simply echoing what the Apostle Paul said 2,000 years ago to the church in Thessalonica. And when Paul sits down to write this church, this is what he says about work and our imagination about work. He says, now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now there's a lot going on there. But one of the things that Paul says about work is that working with your hands is worthy. And this would have been a bomb in first century. Because in the Roman culture, in Hellenistic culture, if you wanted to be considered worthy, if you wanted to be considered smart and important, then all of that was about the life of the mind, about politics and philosophy and argument. And you were a lower class of person if you actually worked with your hands. That if you were the kind of person who got up every day and milled at a trade, then you weren't worthy because you had to work with your hands. And 2,000 years later, we are not that different. Because some of us walked in here this morning believing that in some way we were better than the people at our office who take out the trash. And some of us walked in here thinking we were lesser because we are the people at the office who take out the trash. So when I was a boy in Mississippi, in the summer, <laughs> there was no sabbatical. After baseball season, my parents would take me and my brother to Jackson, Mississippi to spend the rest of the summer with our grandparents. And our grandparents live, both sets of grandparents live just like a few blocks from one another. And they both had farms. And so we'd spend the night at one, and then that grandfather would pick us up and take us to my papa's house. And my papa had a farm, and he would load up all the boy cousins in the back of his pickup truck. Yes, in the back of a pickup truck. I know, it was the 80s. Like, 
parents barely cared about children in the 80s. They never knew where we were. Like, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your children are? Like, people forgot they had children in the 80s. And we would load up in the back of this pickup truck just tons of Palmer cousins. And he would drive us out to a town east of Jackson called Pelahatchee. And every day for the rest of the summer, we worked the farm with my grandfather. And I learned two things over all those summers. The first is that I did not want to be a farmer. <laughs> and the second was the profound power and dignity of people who work with their hands and the work of your hands. Because I don't think that Paul is actually saying like the only work you ought to do should be something you do with your hands. But I don't know what it is that you do or how you go about doing it. There are a lot of things in my life that I do as part of my work that you would never know if it's finished or not. But when you work with your hands, you have to finish. Because if the car is broken down, it won't run until it's finished. And if you're gonna eat that night, you're gonna harvest the food. If there's a leak in the roof, you will keep getting wet until it is finished. This is the power, this is what Paul is pointing to when he talks about the work of your hands. Because this is the same Paul that over and over and over again talks about perseverance and faithfulness. This is the same Paul that urges people to stick things through and in a culture where when we get the least little bit uncomfortable about anything, we quit. The power is being and becoming the kind of person who works with their hands, who sees it through, who makes sure that it's not done being worked on until it's done. That's the power of working with your hands. And there is still today this stigma that we have against people who shower after work rather than people who shower before work. And Paul is saying, there's dignity. Work with your hands because this is the God who put God's very hands into the dirt of the earth and formed you and sent Jesus as his son who worked as a carpenter. And this is the same Paul who makes a living every day making tents. The work of your hands. But let me remind you what he says before that. He starts this passage, Paul says this, now concerning love of the brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. And so Paul wants you to know when it comes to your work, that work flows from love. And Paul does not mean that work flows from just doing what you love. He's not saying go out and do something that you don't love, but that the end result, the purpose of your work is to love, to do something 
for the common good, that the world is made a better place because of your work and the way that you do it and the end result of all of this is love. And very few people will tell you when you wake up on Monday morning or whenever it is that you go to work that what that's about is loving the world. That's why you leave the corners for the poor, that your work produces a better world, a better fed world, a better nurtured world. So while I was on sabbatical, I had goals because that's what I do. And I did not reach my book reading goals. My goal was to read 21 books. I only read 11 and 11 books in 12 weeks is really, really poor for me. But the last one was Jonathan Igg's new biography of Martin Luther King Jr. It's the first biography of King that's been written in 41 years and so many manuscripts and recordings that were secret until recently have been released in the last seven years. And as I was finishing the book, I was reading through King's last sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta before his assassination, his last sermon at his home church. And in it, he talks about work in general and his own work in particular. And this is what he says. He says, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to have your, make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. I'd like for someone to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. This is the heart of work and working. To love somebody. To love. That's the imagination that the scriptures have been inviting us into. Because let me tell you, if you are working for power, wealth, or status, you will always be dissatisfied. There is no finish line to the power, wealth, and status race. And here's how I know. I have written three trade books. And so every quarter, I get three pieces of mail and they are my report card for that quarter. They're called royalty and sales statements. And every time they come in the mail, I barely open them up to see if there's a check inside, because I do have kids in college, and there never has been. And I tear them up and throw them away. People have asked me, how's the book doing? I don't know. And here's why. Because what if I open that envelope 
and I have sold way more books than I thought I would. Well, I know me better than you know me. And there's no option besides me becoming puffed up about that. And what if I open it up and I've sold way fewer than I hoped I would? Well, there's nothing but disappointment and dismay and feelings of failure and frustration. There is nothing inside that envelope but disappointment. And the same is true regardless of what you do. If it's about power or wealth or status, you cannot win because there is no winner. There is always someone with more power, with more money, with more status. As soon as you move from coach to first class, then you'll want to buy into a private jet group, and then you will want to buy your own private jet, and then you'll just want a helicopter to fly you around town. It's like Hollywood. There's no there there. And so that's why when the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, he begins this chapter that ends up being about work by saying this. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask, you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learned from us how you ought to live and to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. Your life is not separate from your work. And if you want to know how to have a meaningful vocation, you work to please God. And when you wake up and you sit in all of that traffic, when you log on to that Zoom call, what you're doing there, what God has invited you to do with your work, is to please God. And in doing that, you will find meaning and a legacy that will last forever. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecdesiahouston.org.